everything I was trying to achieve with drinking, I've actually achieved in sobriety. That feeling of happiness and joy and bliss and peace, peace. If you're drinking thinking it's bringing you peace, you know it's not bringing you peace. But recovery and sobriety, it'll bring you all the peace that you need. It it really, it's so worth it. Um, Life is very short. We should not be sitting around putting poison in our bodies and thinking that's fun or the answer to solving our problems. It's time for the Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, Oh. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Share Podcast, and today we have Gabby Campagna joining us on the show. Gabby was an active alcoholic from the age of 15 to 36, and in 2009, her liver and kidneys shut down from drinking heavily for over a year, and she slipped into a coma. While Gabby was dying in the ICU from a non-viral alcoholic liver disease, her family was told she wasn't expected to make it. However, Gabby's higher power had bigger plans for her, and she survived. It took her over two years to recover her health back. Unfortunately, Gabby did not seek recovery and white-knuckled it for three years. So once again, at the age of 40, she relapses heavily on alcohol and hits a whole new bottom. Until the age of 41, when she entered an outpatient treatment program that was 12-step based. Her recovery story is nothing short of a miracle. Join us now as Gabby takes us through this roller coaster ride of addiction and her journey into recovery up until today. But first, I'm going to read another iTunes review. And this one is from D Animal 957. The title, Best Podcast Ever. And D Animal writes, From episode one, I was hooked. It's a great reminder of the many forms of rock bottom, and it's a great tool for me to listen to if I gotta just escape for an hour or two. I recommend this one to anyone in recovery or trying to get sober. It's funny, insightful, and you can listen over and over again, and each time you will take away something new. D Animal, I hope you're listening. Thank you so much for the great review. There's so much work that goes into producing these podcast episodes and getting these amazing reviews is a constant reinforcement that without question, we are doing God's work here. So again, thanks D Animal 957. And I'll read another quick one. This one is from Jaylin029. Title is Inspiring. And she writes, in love with this podcast, it is so inspiring and real, my new addiction. Well, Jaylin, you could have a lot worse addictions. I think we can all agree this is a good one to have. So folks, if you have not yet rated and reviewed the Share Podcast, please, one of the best ways to help support the show is to go to iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and a review, and that helps catapult us up the ratings on iTunes, which will make it easier for more and more people to find the Share Podcast. Now, in the past, many of you have asked, hey, oh, how can I help support the show? Well, I'm going to keep it simple for you. First, I want to thank the people who have sent us donations via PayPal. There are a few of you that still continuously send donations on a monthly basis, but we can always use more. So on a weekly basis, I have over 5,000 listeners every week who listen to the Share Podcast. So if 100 of you guys would send me five bucks a month, that would completely support the show from beginning to end. So for those of you who have the wherewithal to send me five bucks, either PayPal or by Patreon, 
then please feel free to do so. We could really use the support. Also, when you're purchasing stuff on Amazon, there are those of you that are still clicking on the Amazon link on the Share Podcast website before doing their purchases on Amazon. But again, there are thousands of you listening. If each and every one of you could just remember to go to the Share website, click on the Amazon button before you do your shopping, that is also going to make a tremendous difference for us financially. So I haven't been one to emphasize it in the past, right? But now we've got a solid listener base. I know you guys love the show. I know you guys get a lot out of it. There are those of you just like in the meetings that are newcomers, the money's tight. Keep listening. The show will always be for free. The Share Podcast Private Accountability Group will always be for free. But for those of you who can, kick in a couple of bucks. Help us out here. And not to forget the Share Podcast private accountability group. Again, it's growing like crazy. Guys, go to the Share Podcast, www.thesharepodcast. Click on the button that says join the Facebook private group. And while you're at it, right underneath, it says follow us on Facebook. Click on that one and that will take you to the fan page. Go to the fan page and click like if you haven't done so. Let's build that audience. The fan page likes make a big difference in also finding the Share Podcast. But For those of you that are in the private accountability group, you know how vital and important that has become. There's over 1,500 members in there. If you don't want to go to meetings, if you have problems connecting with people, if you need something more than just the podcasts and are not ready to cross over into meetings or some other structured program, then the private accountability group is perfect for you. Jump in there, make comments, ask questions, or just read the posts. There are so many people out there that have the same questions that you have. All you have to do is just read those and then read all the follow-up answers and responses that come. And make sure to subscribe to my weekly newsletter so you know every single time a brand new episode is launched. And of course, if you have any questions, just email me, o at thesharepodcast.com, and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. So now a quick message from our sponsors, and then on to the show. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction, as well as to the family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can easily be found at www.SoberNation.com. Sober Nation is putting recovery on the map. And finally, would you like to receive the most popular AA daily devotions free in one distribution? Transitions Daily delivers daily devotions from the 24 hours a day, AA thought for the day, daily reflections, big book quote, just for today, as Bill sees it, plus more. You can get our distribution daily via email, private Facebook group, or Twitter. Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information. And don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends in meetings and with sponsees in recovery. Now back to the show. Hey, Gabby, thanks for joining us. Hey, oh, thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the show today. How are you feeling? I'm feeling fabulous. How are you? I'm feeling wonderful. (laughs) Thanks for asking. (laughs) All right, folks. So today we have Gabby Campagna joining us on the Share Podcast. And Gabby has one amazing story. I recently heard her interview on the Bubble Hour, 
and it just blew my mind because I see her on Facebook and all the traveling, and it's hard to believe that she went through the experience she went through. So um, I'm excited to delve into her story. So, uh, Gabby, you ready to get started? Yes, I am. Let's do this. So first of all, let's talk a little bit about what your normal daily routine looks like, including recovery. Okay. Um, well, first of all, I'm a full-time um, web developer, uh, user interface developer and designer um, for a large networking company here in um, San Jose, California. I'm full-time, but I'm a consultant. So I'm somewhat self-employed, but I don't feel self-employed because I have the regular 40-hour-a-week uh, work week. So I do get to work from home um, occasionally, and I, I do that a couple days a week. So um, my typical day will start out. Uh, I'm really in the habit of waking up and starting, like, a little gratitude list, you know, reminding myself what it used to feel like when I woke up in the morning. I am sober. I feel good. I have no hangover. That's usually my first part of my gratitude list. And then I just go on to like like a punch list of other things I'm very happy with. So it really kind of sets my mind straight. Then I just get up, turn on my laptop, uh, check my email, um, you know, go to meetings or get in the car and go down to Milpitas and bumper-to-bumper traffic. Um, <laughs> I am actually very calm in traffic now. Um because I am in a 12-step program, um, I understand the world doesn't revolve around me anymore. Um, so, <laughs> you know, so, um, the, you know, recovery has helped me deal with every little, um, I mean, I live in a very populated area. It's like there's about almost 4 million people in Santa Clara County. So, um, wow. to think the world revolves around me here would be, um, well, that was part of my problem <laughs> in the past, but so I, I just, I, I really have a creative job and a technical job. So it keeps my mind really active during the day. Um, when I first got into recovery, I, I continued working. So that kept my mind focused on other things than just, you know, recovery. And, um, I always recommend to people new to recovery work, you know, just go to work. If you don't have a job, get one. And if you have one, keep doing it. Um, <laughs> unless you're so sick that you have to be in an inpatient or something, but work is really important for me because it, uh, gives me a routine. It keeps me grounded. Um, I'm single and I don't have children, so I can really go crazy if I want to. Um, <laughs> so work really keeps me centered. And then, um, I go to Pilates Monday, Wednesdays and Saturdays. Uh, and that is um, an extremely great workout for me. It's a lot of mind-body connection. I have a personal instructor. Um, I go in small groups. She makes me accountable. She'll charge me if I don't show up. So I make <laughs> sure. And, and it's a really great way to work out. If you're going to get charged and you don't go, um, <laughs> that's kind of on you. So it really, it's another way for me to be accountable. And it and it keeps me in good shape and energetic and active and I sleep really well uh, because of um, my physical fitness and then I have an elliptical at home too so I jump on that for for uh, a little cardio and then I go on hikes um, I try to be as active as I possibly can with a full-time job it's harder in the winter times because you know you can't get out as much but um, that's typically you know my work days I went to France last May and I was in Rome last um, October and I've been to Europe four times since I've been in recovery and Hawaii a few times. Um, I 
had a fear of flying that was so debilitating. I'd have panic attacks. Um, so I started taking flying lessons. And um, that really helps me get over my fear of flying. So now I can get on a plane and travel, you know, for 11 hours and not have one panic attack or feeling that anxiety that we tend to get when we're in an environment that we can't be in control of. Um, Another great thing I learned in recovery is that I, you know, I fear everything. And so I started figuring out I need to start learning about things that I fear, because once I understand why I'm living in this kind of fear, I get over it and I get over it really fast. So I got to understand by um, taking about 13 flying lessons on a small Cessna plane, um, the mechanics, the physics, um, the way that the, the it's a very systematic um, approach to getting a, making sure that a plane is airborne safe. Um, so now that I understand all the hard training and work that goes into getting these things off the ground and on the ground and all of the the crew involved in their, their training, I have um, a huge amount of respect. And I, I understand that the average guy or girl, is they're not flying these planes. They're extremely talented and gifted people. And I don't think they get very much credit for what they do. But now I have a, a whole new appreciation of that. So I can travel anywhere now and just sleep like a baby on a plane. And I was worried that not being able to fly was going to limit my travel. And I got sober so I can live all of life to reach my full potential, to see as much as the world as possible. I didn't get sober so I could sit at home and just be safe and do nothing. <laughs> and um, so so uh, I, I really wanted to understand how um, how planes work in order to get over that fear. And it worked. It's just exposure therapy. It's an expensive sober th- uh, exposure therapy, but um, I recommend anybody who has um, a fear of flying that's in early recovery, just do a demo flight. A lot of these schools have Groupons, and you can just have um, a private lesson. Somebody will take you up there. A, a, a professional like CFI would take you up there and let you hold the yoke and and fly the plane, and it might help you at least have some understanding of how this works so that you can get on a plane and not fear that you'll relapse during a commercial flight, which happens a lot according to my um, psychologist. So um, when I told him I was going to do that, he, he thought I'd lost my mind, but he had also offered me a mild sedative, and I told him, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not taking any sedatives. I know myself. I'm, I will use that thing. I will use it, and it'll lead me back to where I started. So, um, so yeah, that's that's basically what I'm up to. Um, I'm just busy, and I I can't believe how much energy I have. Um, me neither. Yeah, isn't it just... It's like, holy cow. <laughs> I mean, I was functioning pretty well at 50%. I mean, and I'm like at over 100% some days. And um, one of my sponsees asked me, well, Gabby, you know, when you have a list of 10 things to do in a day, how many of those things do you accomplish? I say all of them, and then I'll find 10 more things to do. (laughs) And she's like, you're an overachiever. I said, no, I'm just healthy. That's what healthy people do. They get their stuff done. Unless, you know, something interferes with it throughout the day and they can't get to it. That's just how the rest of the, I'm like, look at how this world works. Look at, like, we live in a, 
you know, a first world country or developed country. Things get done because people aren't walking around drunk all the time or hung over. So, um, you know, I just, I try to be, <laughs> I try to be as active as possible. And it, it keeps me from um, getting myself into trouble, which I can do very easily if I have too much idle time. So I always make sure that I keep, um, I've got something up my sleeve, something I'm going to do, something that's healthy and productive, though. Um, definitely attending meetings helps, um, helping other people in early recovery or just hanging out with people who are, you know, have so, a couple of years like me. Um, I have a little over three years sober now. Excellent. And, uh, well, th- on that note, tell us how much clean time you have and what your anniversary date is. Okay, I have a little, I have three years and a little bit over a month. So my sober anniversary is July 23rd, 2013. Yay. And I I didn't have to reset it either, ever. Like that, that's the day. Uh, That's the day. It's wonderful when you can just like, when it it ends, you know, where you, where you don't have to, because there's some people where obviously relapse is a part of their story yes but for some people the bottom was so hard that uh enough was enough at that moment it actually relapse is part of my story um and that'll make more sense down the road but i was never in real recovery so um that's kind of I had my own program going yeah so. yeah <laughs> Yeah, but, but, yeah, yeah. There's there's that whole difference between an actual relapse and somebody who just you know tries to white knuckle it and be a dry drunk and, and yeah. use willpower, and then they wonder why they just perpetually keep going back out and breaking their breaking their commitment to stop drinking. Mm-hmm. Which I probably did as many as the the average drinker does. You know, we make all these promises and we break all these promises and all of our silly rules. And um, I, I really, though, felt that since I had never asked for help ever in the 20 plus years that I had been an alcoholic, um, I always knew I needed help. But I knew once I was going to swallow my pride and walk through the doors of treatment and say, I am an alcoholic and I need help. I was not going to waste my time or anyone else's time. I mean, that was just my mindset because it took me so much energy and willpower to actually raise my hand and say, I need help. And once I did that, it was like I broke through a major barrier because um, I'm just not one of those type of people like many of us. Just we don't ask for help. We think we can do everything on our own in just many areas of our lives, not just when it comes to alcohol. So, Absolutely. Absolutely. Listen, uh, you are 130% warmed up here. So yeah. now I am just going to turn the show over to you. It is time for you to share your story, the battle against drugs and alcohol, <laughs> the wreckage it caused in your life when you hit rock bottom, and then finally, your journey into recovery up until today. So, Gabby, take it away. All right. Thank you. Well, as I mentioned earlier, I have a little over three years sober. My first drink, first of all, I, I grew up um, with loving parents. Um, they're still married. 
they've been married 50 years this year. Uh, We just had a celebration. Yeah, we had a nice celebration for them. It was like a, it was like a wedding, actually. (laughs) So uh, I came from very um, stable parents, very loving parents. They love not only their children, but they love each other, too. Um, which was um, just wonderful growing up seeing that type of um, dynamic between a very strong couple. My mom always worked. My dad always worked. They're 100% equal partners, lots of respect for each other. So I had a, a healthy home life, nothing nothing traumatic. Um, I have two younger sisters. They're just one year younger than me, and they're twins. So that made for a tense environment um, at times. Anybody who has daughters that are close in age might understand the competitive nature of girls. Um, I didn't have brothers, so I can't speak to what a household like that is. Oh, um, no, I had like. two sisters. I had two sisters. I know exactly <laughs> what that's like. Yeah, yeah, a lot of, oh, just a lot of cattiness. Um, uh-huh. and, and it's just the it's just the way we are. And being so close in age, it was, it was a lot of competition. And since I'm a perfectionist, um, I probably wasn't so easy uh, to live up to. Um, My room was always perfect. Everything had its place. Not a wrinkle on my bedspread. Um, I was extremely, I think not like unhealthy OCD as a child, but I needed to control my environment from like a very early age. Control was my thing. And that's just, that's just part of my nature. Um, I'm much better at (laughs) recognizing that now myself, but to me, it was just me being me. And then I have one sister, she's the absolute opposite, just her room was a wreck. Um, So I'd always help her out and clean her room. So nice. (laughs) since my mom worked full time, I was kind of like her helper. I was like the responsible older one. So I would help her manage her house. And, um, you know, I, I was a good kid. I went to Catholic school. I didn't get into any trouble other than maybe talking a little bit too much. But, um... My life started to change when um, I transitioned from the sixth grade into seventh grade from Catholic school into public school. Quite a culture shock. Um, I My sisters weren't at that school with me because they were still younger. So I went over alone to this public school and I didn't know anybody. And um, I just basically wanted to fit in like everybody else, started dressing like everybody else did. Um, nothing the first year, the seventh grade year happened other than me just opening my eyes to behavior I'd never seen before. Um, kids were drinking, kids were smoking, kids were doing things that I just, I really didn't even see adults doing much in my life. I mean, you know, my family, my mom and my dad, they would drink, but they were not heavy drinkers. They didn't throw wild parties. So there was a lot of new exposure for me, um, so my eighth grade, um, my eighth grade year is when I was first offered alcohol. I was 13 years old and I was at a friend's house and we were getting ready to go uh, to a dance. Um, and it was myself and two girls and her parents had a pretty good sized liquor cabinet. So we combined um, various distilled spirits like vodka, bourbon, gosh, I have no idea looking back. It was just everything that we could find. And we threw it in a big glass. And my friend called it a suicide and handed it to me. (laughs) It sounds like a Long Island iced tea. Yeah, but it was worse. I mean, I mean, a suicide, that was the name of the first drink I ever had. And it appropriately named. Um, So, of course, 
myself and these two other very young girls were all 13. We drank them and um, we didn't even have that much. And my mom had actually picked us up to take us to the dance and she smelled it on us, but we weren't hammered yet. We had just ingested it. And I was just begging my mom, please let us go in. Like my friends had already ran out of the car by the time we got to the dance. And my mom's like, I'm bringing you home. And I'm like, no, I'm trying to make friends. And my mom just didn't know what to do. But uh, so she let me go into the dance because she really didn't understand what we had consumed, but she knew something was up. And I ended up getting very sick and vomiting at the dance in front of all of these people who I'm trying to impress and make new friends with. And another friend I was with, she actually got so sick that the ambulance had to come. The paramedics came and took her away. Um, Yeah. And her parents pulled her out of school right away and put her um, into private school. So that that was my first experience with alcohol. I don't even remember like enjoying the sensation of it. Um, I think it it hit me so hard, so fast, made me so sick. It was like drinking bleach. You know, I just don't. I didn't know it hit me, and I got sick. And I don't even think I felt any kind of euphoria. It was just an unpleasant experience. And my parents came early and picked me up, and they had a good lecture and told me, you know, this is not acceptable behavior. And, um, you know, I, I, I learned from that lesson. I didn't drink for um, two more years, which seemed like forever back then, but it was just two years. So by the time I got into high school, my freshman year, the end of my freshman year, I was offered, um, I was offered beer from pretty much day one in high school, but I really was afraid of it. Um, I had hung out with a, lo- a lot of boys who were just a little bit older than me, um, they were always trying to encourage me to drink. And uh, I finally, um, I think I went through a breakup with one of them, and I was I was kind of hurt. So we went to another dance. Um, I was uh, down the street at a friend's house next to the high school, and she had a party because her mom was on a business trip or something. And we were all just drinking beer. Um, and I remember I drank it really slowly, but I, that's when I felt it. That's when I felt the click. That's like when the allergy started right away. I felt um, confident and my anxiety was gone. I really just kind of felt like whatever that itch I've been having in my life, like anxiety, um, irritability, all of it just kind of disappeared. And that became a common theme for me throughout high school. I drank... Um, every weekend as like this hardcore binge drinker. Um, I was invited to lots of parties. I kind of hung out with the cool kids. So um, the cool kids were, you know, behaving inappropriately a lot of the time. Um, But the only real thing that happened in high school, because I don't want to spend too much time on this, was uh, the same year I started drinking, I was at a kegger party and I uh, fell off the sidewalk (laughs) when I was leaving it. And I hit my forehead on the tailpipe of a... Yeah. So I was gushing blood out of my head. My friends were freaking out. Um, And this was my first uh, real consequence from drinking. Uh, My friends brought me home, and my parents just were mortified. Their daughter had blood all over her hair, all over my face. Um, Do you you still have a scar from that? Yeah, it's on my yeah, it's right over my eyebrow. But it, it luckily it happened right on my eyebrow, so that it, it's kind of covered by the hair. <laughs> but I had a uh, three stitches. Um, that they did a good job, so the, the scar is very minimal. Um, I'm lucky I didn't I didn't take my eye out. You know, 
looking back, that could have been a much worse situation. Um, but the, I was hammered and I was coherent. And the doctor told my parents, your daughter's wasted drunk and she's got a problem because he knew how much I had ingested and how coherent I was. Um, and that's just how my whole drinking experience has been throughout my life. I can drink unbelievably large amounts of alcohol and be standing and be fine. And rarely ever, I think I had maybe three or four blackouts the entire time I've been drinking all throughout my life. So, um, I scared plenty of people when they find out how much I can ingest and it's nothing to brag about. It's just part of my DNA. Um, you know, what, what is fine for me, I'm like an alien, would kill a mortal. You know, I, it's, you know what I'm saying? I do, it's, I do. It's like uh, not a, only 10% of us can get away with this kind of thing. It would kill the average person. So um, so that was pretty much my teen years. I, I did um, get decent grades. I didn't work very hard at my grades though so I, I really um cheated myself um I also had a lot of uh, issues with some older boys and, and girls I'd get bullied and sexually harassed so drinking helped me deal with my emotions um that's when I realized in my teen years I'm an emotional drinker I couldn't handle disappointment and breakups um so so that was that was my teen years that was my first real exposure um then my 20s when I was 19, I had an ectopic pregnancy. Um, for those of your listeners who don't know what that is, it's an um, it's a pregnancy where the the fetus is uh, stuck somewhere outside of the uterus. Um, it was for me, it was uh, stuck in my left fallopian tube. I was only 19 years old, so um, by the wow. time I was yeah, I was I was in a serious relationship, and um, I guess I wasn't using birth control right. I don't know, but. Uh, I, I waited about nine weeks till I actually went to the doctor to complain about all this pain I was having. And um, they did an ultrasound and they were like, yeah, you're pregnant, but this is not a normal pregnancy. And they explained to me what was going on. And I was still in so much pain and they sent me home. And um, they should have admitted me that night to the hospital, but they didn't. So the next morning I, I woke up in excruciating pain and I, I went to the emergency room and they, they put me through surgery, um, emergency surgery, and they removed the, the fetus from my uh, left fallopian tube via C-section. Um, I hemorrhaged all over the table. I almost died. Um, so that, that experience for me was um, traumatic. And this was nineteen. Yeah, I was nineteen. Brutal. It was, it was extremely brutal. It was, uh, it was. I was just. I had never even heard of anything like this happening. And you know, everybody. It was kind of scandalous because everyone's like, "Oh my God, she was pregnant." And now everybody knows. But to me, it's like I didn't care about like, oh, everybody knows I got pregnant. I was more like, I'm, I'm like dying over here. So I was in the hospital for about two weeks. Um, recovering from this and I had I needed lots of blood transfusion they put me on morphine they put me on Demerol they put me on everything and I was allergic to everything because I'm allergic pretty much to everything that is bad for me it seems 
So after two weeks of being in the hospital, I went home and it took about a good six months for my scar to really heal. But I was out of commission for a good three months. I so I couldn't work. I couldn't go to my community college classes. Um, I was on the couch every day, just watching TV, depressed. Um, I I was drinking. I threw all my painkillers away because they weren't helping me. I was in a lot of emotional pain, a lot of physical pain. So I started. That's when I really started drinking every day, like an alcoholic. That was like my first experience with chronic alcoholism. Uh, that lasted for a good six months, and then um, I was since I was in a relationship with somebody. Um, after I got better, we just kind of like partied like rock stars for five years together. Um, but we were so young, we didn't end up, you know, getting married. Um, it was a really volatile relationship. A lot of emotion, emotional abuse um, on his part, and my drinking didn't help, but. My, my early 20s, I would definitely have qualified myself as an alcoholic. I knew I needed AA, but I didn't think AA would be helpful for me. I felt I was too young for AA, which I know a lot of young people think. Um, but that's just where my head was. And if my boyfriend had asked me to stop drinking, I would say to him, well, how's that going to work since we party so much? Like, how am I not going to drink when you're drinking, like, as bad as me on the weekends? Like, that's just not going to work. So I would play the games. Of, like, I'd, I'd stop for a couple of days, a couple of weeks. And, you know, I was up and down. And then finally we broke up. And I kind of... Uh, had a, another year of depression and and I drank a lot. I was back at home with my parents. Um, just, but I, I was old enough to buy my own wine and beer, and so I I drank alcoholically, like definitely from nineteen to twenty five. And then at twenty five, I did a geographical change, which is you know moving, thinking that your environment's going to cure you, fix you. Um, I moved to Southern California from Northern California, and I actually did pretty well. I, I really stuck to just drinking beer. I made a promise to myself um, that I would just work full time, take good care of myself. Um, I met a guy who um, was a surfer. He's 22 years older than me, but um, I met him at work, and he actually was in the program. He was recovering from heroin addiction, so I gravitated toward a very healthy person. Um, and also, we went to Costa Rica a few times. Nice. Um, well, I've been really? I've been there, Pal and uh, Aco. Um, so yeah, yeah. So where were you at again? Dominical, which is I Domin guess ah, Dominical. Yeah, <laughs> that place. <laughs> yeah, and Haco. Yeah, Haco. Thank you. But it starts yeah. with the J, right? Well, Dominical is gorgeous, and Haco yes. is a pit. <laughs> yeah, we drove through there because he had to at least try it out, you know. But yeah. um, yeah. we drove from San Jose and the little Suzuki, and I had a pretty healthy life um, considering I, I was still a heavy drinker. I really tempered myself a lot. And because I was managing myself I convinced myself that I wasn't an alcoholic anymore I just was because I was living somewhere and I was miserable and I hated my ex-boyfriend and so it was everything else's fault and it wasn't me so I was really good at convincing myself that I had a good handle on my drinking um, it didn't really affect my relationship too much he didn't like it but he was also 12-stepping me and I did have boundaries with my drinking so um 
After being with him for seven years, we parted ways. Our age difference just caught up with us, but nothing, nothing, nothing bad happened. It was a nice relationship. We're still friends to this day, but unfortunately, he has relapsed, um, which is quite sad. That is sad because he he did have like um, almost ten years. So oh, man. But uh, that's this. This is the lesson I learned. Uh, yeah. He had a health issue come up. He had um, he had something. He had hepatitis, and he had a uh, gallbladder removed because of I think it was part of his condition. And when they put him on opiates, that was it. Mm, you know, yeah, that's it. So it just shows you that. And and I'm shocked because he was so strong and solid, and it just it's. I, I hope he can get it together again, but I don't know. But but um, it it's scary to know that people who are super solid and they can have a decade, it, they can have a medical condition happen and, and they're back, you know, they're back. And he, I've seen his friends have died from this, and I've actually grown up with a few people who have already died from alcoholism and drug abuse. So, um I, I, anyway, I, I know I know this disease well, not just from my own experience, but from witnessing it from others. So um, fast forward a little bit from out of my 20s. Um, I was on my own. I was starting to hang out with my neighborhood friends who were heavy drinkers. Um, and I had promised myself that I would not gravitate to these type of people, but... They kept coming over and asking me out, and you want to do this, you want to have some wine, go hang out at the pool. It was like a community where everybody was like in their 20s, 30s, and some of them were in their 40s, but recently divorced, so they were like acting like they were in their 20s again, and um, I just kind of got caught up with a rougher crowd, and one of the girls I was hanging out with, her, she had a birthday and her boyfriend invited a bunch of his guy friends so she had asked me to come along and that's the night I met my ex-husband my now ex-husband and um, that's when everything in my life turned upside down and very quickly um, so I'll just get into this and try to blow through it this is the longer part of my story uh, he was um, a party guy very friendly, very gregarious, very outgoing. He also was going through a nasty divorce when we met. Um, he was legally separated, but he was living up in Northern California. So he was just on a weekend visit um, when I met him. And he was working for a large mortgage lender um, selling subprime loans in the wholesale sector. So he was making a very good living, but part of the nasty Part of his divorce was that because he was making such good money, she she wanted a nice settlement. So, oh, yeah. yeah. So the divorce, and they didn't even have children together. I mean, she just she had a child with a different person before they had met, and he helped her raise this child. And because she wanted a lot of custody, he went to the courts and said uh, the family court and said, you know, I make a lot of money. She doesn't have to work. Uh, oh. I can take care. Yes, yeah, so yeah, yeah, he shot himself in the foot right there. So he made her a dependent, and they were married seven years. So um, he basically, she got like over a million dollar settlement. It, it was something really gross. Wow. <laughs> yeah, but I didn't know all this yet. This is like, this. all of this information came later, because he's such a nice guy. He didn't really say much about the situation to me, I knew that she was horrible to him. Um, 
I, I'm one of those people where I, I feel sorry. I have, I'm very empathetic. Um, I, I felt so bad for this guy. That was part of the appeal um, for our relationship was just like, he, he was so sweet and good guys are hard to come by. Um, and he was so nice to me. I mean, he wasn't playing games with me like a lot of other guys did. He was only three years older than me, so there was no age difference really going on. He let me drink. He liked my drinking. He encouraged my drinking. Um, and that is something I had not experienced with a guy. Like, they might have liked it sometimes, but they were always worried for my health. So uh, my alcoholism definitely fell for this guy, um, and I, I think, um, you know, looking back, I don't know if I was truly in love with him or if I was just kind of in love with the idea of being with someone who would be good to me, someone who would be a strong partner. Um, and also, you know, we, I did like him as a person, and I, I knew that it was important for me to be with somebody who I actually liked. Like, we had things in common, especially the drinking part. Um, which I, I really became the only thing in common over time as, as I started to realize as we got into the relationship. So our relationship moved very fast. He asked me to move in with him after the first two weeks of dating because we were living so far away from each other. So I rented my condo out because I was a homeowner and I rented it out. I moved up to Northern California in Lodi, which is in Central Valley. It's um, a bit remote and there's nothing in the tech field. Um, I was already a web designer at that time, so all of my techs, my, my, my skills are tech-related, and I couldn't find any work out there. And since he was in the mortgage industry, um, he had a lot of friends who were real estate agents, and we were going out to real estate parties all the time. And this was before the mortgage collapse, so everybody had a ton of money. A ton of money. Ton, like sickening amount of yes. money for not yeah. doing a whole lot either, mm -hmm. I mean really sick but I wasn't part of that world so I didn't even understand like how what the kind of commissions these people were making I mean I started to slowly find out I even got my real estate license but I never used it because <laughs> my job was to support him and like be his arm candy and hang out and make him look good and throw parties so um, my life had changed a lot and I've always been this independent chick who wanted to make her own way and I've always had this like self pride and he made it seem so easy for me just to like trust him that he's got our finances together. Like he, he can take care of us. Um, he was making about $600,000 a year. So he's like, Gabby, even if you do work, I mean, what are you really going to bring to the table? And I can, yeah, yeah. Why and don't I you mean, insult me while you're at it? And I'm like, I don't know what to think. And plus, I was drinking and partying so much, I kind of felt like I need this break because I've been working since I was 17. I, I mean, my senior year of high school, I got my first kind of real job. I worked 20 hours a week at a, a, a large insurance company um, as a paid intern. So um, I had a really good work ethic, but. I really let myself get lost in that relationship, which I tend to do like in all of my relationships, but I really let it all go in this one. I mean, I placed all of my bets on him. I sold my house. Um, he had bought a, a oversized mini mansion the year that he was going through his divorce, the year that I had also moved up there because we got married within a, about a year of knowing each other. And so in 2006, he approaches me with a three and a half carat emerald cut diamond ring. Ooh. And yeah, there was no way I was going to say no. 
Um, and I, I was really drunk the night, too, that he had proposed to me. <laughs> and so that thing probably looked five times its size. Um, <laughs> and I, the thing is, I'm not a greedy, like, gold digger woman. So, I mean, I really kind of thought, I never, like, planned on, like, having a family or having kids or anything. So... I think I was just making my life up as I went along. Like I wasn't, I didn't have any like real long-term goals. So when I met him, I thought, oh, you know, we can like kind of build a little empire. I can get my real estate license. We can make a lot of money together. There's all this opportunity here. Um, and it just, it seemed like a really good deal. And I accepted. And the year he got divorced was the year we got married in 2006. And it happened very quickly and I wasn't paying attention at all to any of the finances to what was going on with the settlement uh, his ex-wife would stalk us one time she came into the house and was screaming at us you know while we're in bed um, there was like crazy stuff going on with her but once the settlement happened I never saw her again she just kind of disappeared um, so in 2007, right before um, the mortgage collapse, he comes to me and he tells me that he lost his high-paying job, um, that all these uh, big lenders selling subprime loans were in a lot of trouble, and that we were going to lose our house, and we lost our house. And so we had a couple of months to think about what our next move would be. And this is when my drinking started to get really out of control, because um, I... I've always been fearful of losing a house. Um, you know, I know what it takes to buy a house. I'd bought three homes before I'd met him. I flipped two of them, and I third my sold, sold my third one um, when we got married. So I had a, a good understanding of what was going on, at least when it came to like losing a home. What kind of uh, you know, seven years on your your credit, you've destroyed your credit. Um, it just it's it's a mess. And we didn't file bankruptcy. Um, we just kind of moved on. We moved to Silicon Valley. We sold everything we had, and I insisted that we move to Silicon Valley because I have tech skills. And um, but I hadn't worked in about two years in my field. And his brother also had a house here. I mean, a house. He had a business here, still does, and he's a retail mortgage lender. So the retail mortgage lenders during the mortgage collapse, they weren't really affected. Um, they were still able to do business. Just the guidelines had changed. So they were still in business. So my ex-husband um, started working with his brother on commission only, though, no salary. So he was oh, making no man. money. Yep. And then I was um, starting to look for work, and I couldn't get an offer. And that really killed my self-esteem. I, I, I'm like, I blew it. I blew all of the hard years of work I've done in order because I didn't have a college degree. I worked from I started out as a receptionist in the tech field, and I worked my way up into software engineering. And I'd let my my skills slide, and uh, and that's like a death sentence in the tech world. I mean, you have to keep your tech skills up to date because they can become obsolete very quickly because programming languages, they evolve. Um, and all the technology that we work on here, it evolves super fast. I mean, at lightning speed. So um, I was very depressed. I was starting to drink vodka every day. And when around the time I started drinking vodka every day, and I switched over to vodka from wine because vodka, for some reason, didn't make me as sick as wine did which is so ridiculous. But um, this is when my ex comes to me and tells me, um, I have something to tell you. I, I owe the IRS $150,000. 
um, because I had to cash out my 400000 401k to pay my ex part of her settlement, and I didn't pay the tax on that. And then he also owed her another $250,000. So one day I found out I was in $400,000 worth of debt, plus lost my house, plus had no job, plus the other credit card debts that we were having were starting to increase, plus we had no health insurance. Um, Everything was just unraveling very, very, very quickly for me. And I just knew that we couldn't even file bankruptcy on this. These are unforgivable debts. You can't you can't fight a judgment like that um, with the courts when it comes to a divorce, and you cannot fight the IRS. Um, and because he did make so much money, he tried to make to settle with the IRS, but the IRS said, "No, no, no! You made too much for too many years. No, you're going to pay all of this." So there was no leniency for him. So um, the entire year of 2008, I drank vodka all day, every day. I just slept and drank and drank and slept. Um, and I, I was starting to notice that I had some physical, really bad physical symptoms going on. But I, I really started to dismiss myself altogether. I really think I lost my mind and I lost all hope. Um, I even stopped trying to look for work because I, I'd been rejected enough times to know that I, I didn't have what it takes to survive in Silicon Valley. It's very competitive and a very tough environment. So um, I'll just push forward through um, 2008, I found out that's when the mortgage collapse was really happening. It wasn't just happening to us. It was happening to everyone else in the United States and or many people here. And I was so angry at him because I was looking at him like this person I trusted. He, he had lied to me, but then I, feel, I figured out he, he lied to a lot of people. A lot of people lost their homes because of this person that I married. Yes, I was extremely, yes. extremely, extremely mad, um, and I didn't see a lot of remorse on his part. He's just a very optimistic person, and he's like, well, we'll be fine. We'll, we'll get through this, and I'm thinking, how are we going to pay for like $400,000 of money? We, these are our future earnings you're talking about. Um, how is this going to happen? How are we going to buy a house again someday? How are we going to re- rebuild our lives? And he had no roadmap. And um, so I-, I drank myself to the point where I got uh, alcoholic liver hepatitis. Um, and I went into liver failure in early 2009. I woke up one morning. I hadn't drank for about four days because I had felt very sick. And um, the reason why I was very sick is that my liver was four times its natural size. I had jaundice. Um, I was having nosebleeds. So I had uh, my husband take me to the emergency room at the county hospital because uh, we didn't have health insurance. We couldn't go to just a regular private hospital like Kaiser or um, Stanford or, or whatever was available around here. We went to county hospital and as soon as I walked in the door, they admitted me right away because they knew I was already in critical condition. And um, I told the the ER doctor, um, I'm an alcoholic, and I think that's the first time that ever actually came out of my mouth. And they they told me, yes, we know you are um, because of what, what was going on. I probably smelled really bad, too. So they... Uh, they um, basically gave me an MRI to confirm my condition. And when they gave me the MRI, before they had done that, they, they were supposed to test to see if I was allergic to the MRI dye contrast. And it turns uh, out... I, okay. Yeah, and that shut my kidneys down. Oh. So I had kidney and liver failure. But what I didn't know was that the doctor who was assigned to me, she didn't tell me that. 
she was responsible for my kidneys being shut down. I thought that was just, you know, I did that all from the drinking. So um, they admitted me. Um, at first, they thought that I'd be okay because they've seen this happen a lot. Um, they'd say, you're probably going to be here for a couple weeks. But then when the kidney failure diagnosis, the doctor on my case, she came to me and said, you know, nobody survives kidney and liver failure. You probably have 72 hours left to live. Oh, my and, God. Yeah. So I found out um, that I'm going to die. She's like, you're not going to walk out of here. And I'm sorry, but you brought this on yourself. You did this to yourself. Brutal. And yeah, very oh, vicious, um, the way she said it. I, I mean, I can't even say my feelings were hurt. I was just so shocked. But um, within the next two days, my body just started going major haywire. Everything started shutting down. They did a paracentesis to um, remove the fluid that was in my abdomen. But I gained 40 pounds of fluid overnight because my kidneys shut down, so my body was retaining um, all these toxins that normally your liver and your kidneys uh, filter out. So I, I, was, I was an extreme wreck. I, I, I don't even know what I look like. I didn't have anyone take any pictures of me, and I'm kind of glad I didn't. But uh, I, knew, I, I knew I was in so much trouble. Um, but I was still in a lot of denial. Like, this, this is part of my nature. Like, I was like, I'm not going to die. There's just no way that's going to happen. And she brought a do not resuscitate order to me twice to have me sign it um, because she knew she screwed up. Um, I would not sign the DNR because I'm like, if I'm going to shut down, I want, I want to be on life support at this point because I really wasn't accepting the fact that I was dying. So she was extremely aggravated with me that I wouldn't sign this DNR. And on the third day, um, I went into encephalopathy um, my brain uh, could, my body couldn't process the, the ammonia so um, I went into coma and I was uh, sent down to the ICU I remember being on the gurney and then the lights were out and um, that was it for me uh, so I was in the ICU for a few hours and they called my family down and they told my parents and my sisters and my um, ex-husband she's not going to make it through the night. So my family, of course, was extremely upset. They didn't know how the extent of my alcoholism until that point. I mean, they knew that probably I was doing it too much, but they had no idea because I'd always been such a good person to drink around. I always managed to handle myself. Nobody really in my family ever thought I had a problem. So they're in quite a bit of shock. Um, and the doctor in the ICU said, you know, she's a donor in and she, we had a talk with her, and she wants to donate her organs if something happens. She signed the paperwork. And um, they said the things that we're going to want from her are her heart, because she has only a 1% coronary risk factor. Her heart's extremely strong, and it'll be a winner. Um, we want her lungs, because they're in great shape, and we want her kidneys. And my parents and my sisters were stunned. They're like, her kidneys, what are you talking about? They're just as bad as her liver. And the doctor said, no, actually, if you take her kidneys out of her and put them inside a healthy person, they'll work just fine. And from what I understand, that's not typical. But this conversation, that hospital was not typical either. So um, my family lost their mind at that point, and they demanded that they do something anything to save me because they're like if her kidneys are still okay and her heart and her lungs are still okay there's a chance that she can push through this and get a liver transplant or something 
And they said, well, you know, we could put her on emergency dialysis. And they're like, why didn't you do this before? So my father, my mom, they were like, we're going to sue you if you don't do something. And we're going to sue you for everything you guys have. So my family demanded that they put me on um, dialysis. And so they gave me emergency dialysis. They cut a hole in my, my neck and they ins- inserted the tube in my aorta. And uh, within about a couple hours, I think it was a couple hours, nobody really can ever tell me this part of the story, I woke up from my coma. Um, wow. I mean, I, I was just like, what happened? Um, seriously, it was like Dorothy waking up in The Wizard of Oz. Uh, and that's that's when I had my spiritual awakening. Um, I, I just, I said to my husband at the time, I said, I- I'm going to be a success story. I'm going to make it. And I was talking backwards like Yoda because I had brand damage and he didn't really understand what he said, but I knew what I said. And um, I was about two weeks in the ICU. Um, It was touch and go for those two weeks. They weren't sure if I was going to make it. They did tell me they'd keep me comfortable, um, you know, because I was dying that um, I knew I was at the end of the road for sure and that it was a, a major battle. Uh, the priest on staff came by and gave me my last rites um, pretty much daily. And I just had little conversations with him if I could. But I was alone in that ICU room for two weeks. And then after two weeks, they transferred me into a um, regular hospital bed. So I was in the hospital for two months. Um, I had uh, so many procedures. I don't want to get into it because it is time-consuming to talk about. But it, it, it a lot really gross, really gross stuff. Um uh, basically two months in the hospital, I, I lost a lot of weight. I uh, got down to about 95 pounds and I'm five foot five. So I had to basically learn how to walk because they told me if I didn't start walking and I couldn't work with the occupational therapist and, 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 and get some activity level going up, they were going to put me in a convalescent home. And I was on dialysis still. Um, so at two months, uh, I left the hospital and then I was readmitted um, a week later because I had complications from a medication and my kidneys and I was there for about four days and I pushed through that and they, they let me go and I had one more month of dialysis. So all in total, I was on dialysis for three months. Um, and for about six months, uh, the, they were going to, they were talking to me about going to UCSF, uh, to talk about getting on a liver transplant list but they had found out that um, I didn't have cirrhosis. It, it was starting to heal. So my liver took about two years to heal, uh, regenerate. Um, by, it was February of 2011, they told me um, my liver was fine. It was perfect that, um, that I was good to go. I didn't have to do my follow-up appointments anymore. Um, there was a lot of other health complications that happened, but I don't want to get too involved in all that. I guess it's more of a gross story than anything else. So um, we still were having our financial problems, you know, as I was healing from all this. But what I had done was since I was sober and not drinking and coherent, um, I did go and get a medical marijuana card because it's legal to smoke medical marijuana here. And it did help me get my activity level back up. And it did help kind of like scratch that itch that I had as an alcoholic. Um, But I really thought I was cured because I really scared myself to death. Um, So 
I started working uh, from home doing freelance work, building websites for just random people, um, some marketing agency. I, I built about 20 sites in about two years. I worked um, another position also um, for a startup company, and I worked for them remotely. And I wasn't making great money, but I was building my portfolio back up. So in July 2011, um, a really big networking company here, uh, they had a recruiter. They found my portfolio, and they offered me um, an interview. And I went in, and I interviewed, and I got offered the job the next day. And this is a job that I could not have even been close to obtaining when I first moved back, moved to, moved to Silicon Valley. Um, so this was a high-paying um, consultant job, and it was basically, um, my life again changed overnight. I went to making a low six-figure salary, um, and we were starting to pay off our debts very quickly. So um, I went about three and a half years without drinking. I did smoke medical marijuana. I got my health back together. Um, plus, a lot of my hair fell out when I was sick, so all my hair grew back. And as soon as my hair grew back and I started looking like my old self, I started thinking like my old self. I mm, forgot how bad yeah. I was. And um, I took my ex-husband and myself to Vegas because we had not traveled in years. Like, in years, we hadn't done anything fun. We'd just been paying bills. And uh, we so were... let's go to Vegas. Yeah, so, I, you know, I really, I don't know what I was thinking. I, I honestly, I knew it could be a quick trip. I could do some work while I was there. Um, I spoiled us. I got us a 1,500-square-foot suite at the Venetian, and um, we went out to a couple of nice restaurants, like high-end restaurants, and at one of those restaurants, it was really loud and really annoying, and I looked at my husband at the time, who I, I wanted out of that marriage, but I just was not there yet. And I looked at him, I said, I got to get out of here. Like, this, this place is too noisy for me. And he's like, I don't want to go. I've been wanting to eat here forever. And I was paying for it, too. So it really aggravated me that he wasn't listening to me. And um, I just thought, this guy doesn't care about me. And he never did. And I, I said, F it. I'm going to have a glass of wine. So I had a glass of wine. And then I had another glass of wine. And I didn't get drunk. I didn't get drunk for a good couple weeks. Maybe it was probably two months into my relapse, um, my relapse from my own program. Um, so <laughs> I slowly slipped back into the, the alcoholism. But it's almost like I went through a journey of my entire drinking career in one year. You know, the first couple weeks, it was just a little bit here and there. Then it was a couple months into it, it was every weekend getting drunk. Then it was, you know, nine months into it, I was I was back to pretty much almost all, all every day, but not during the day at all, but after work hours, most definitely. You know, I had all my rules, and I kept slowly breaking those rules. And by month 10, it was as if I never stopped. Um, I didn't drink vodka this time, but the exact same symptoms were coming back. I started bruising all over. I lost a lot of weight. My hair was falling out. I was, um, I was bumping into things. I was very sick. I was very isolated. And that's when, um, in July of 2013, I, I decided it's time to ask for help. 
and I called Kaiser in Santa Clara um, CDRP, uh, Chemical Dependency Re- Recovery Program. They have an outpatient program there, and it's amazing. Um, I called them. I told them what kind of a drinker I was, what my history was. So they told me that I could come in the following week after I made arrangements with work because I'd have to take a couple uh, weeks off for day treatment. And, um, and I decided to, to really commit myself to, to getting a handle on this because um, I knew I was going to die and I knew what was waiting for me. And the thought of going through uh, what I had gone through, the hell I went through, the way I was even treated by many of the, the medical staff at that hospital, um, you know, if they treated their cancer patients or anybody with a, a legitimate disease like this, they'd be out of business. But, you know, when you're an alcoholic and you're dying, it's your fault. There's no compassion or empathy. You're just a loser. Um, and and that, I was very traumatized from what I went through in that hospital. I mean, although they did save my life, and I give them credit for that, and I never did sue them, and they never charged me a dime because they knew they screwed up, I, I, I just I couldn't, I couldn't put myself through it anymore. So um, I wanted out of my marriage, and I also wanted out of my alcoholism, and I knew I had to do it simultaneously. So when I got to Kaiser... Um, it was, uh, I was there almost three weeks every single day, uh, weekends included, and I, I went through all the classes. It was a 12-step program-based um, program, and my first day at treatment was my first day going to AA, and I didn't know that Alcohol and Alcoholics Anonymous was part of this deal, but uh, I told them I wasn't ready for it. And they told me, <laughs> they told me to get in the car <laughs> and to be quiet. <laughs> and so I, I did everything they told me to. I was the most compliant person I could be because I knew that these people had the answers that I've been looking for on my own for so long. So I was a good little patient. I, I really wanted to be the A student, and um, I really I was so motivated. Um, and I never knew anybody and who had recovery, let alone long term recovery, until I got help. Um, and I think this is what kept me from asking for help for a very long time. I just didn't know anybody who was active in a program and was thriving. Um, I just, not in my personal life, I know that they existed, but I really thought that there's no program out there that's going to fix this kind of crazy. Um, because for some reason I'm not suicidal, but I want to die. Like what's motivating this behavior? So when I got to the treatment, I started learning um, about addiction. Um, I also got into group therapy, which was huge because um, just learning how to connect with people and open up and be vulnerable um, was something I was just not accustomed to doing. I just didn't trust anybody. Uh, So so basically when I was there, I found out that this program is 16 months long if you want to take it all the way. So they had different phases of the program. So I got to go to aftercare um, during, uh, like, after work. So I, I went for 16 months every single week uh, to Kaiser. I mean, and, and not doing it online. I mean, this was like I had to be there. I had to be in group. I got urine tested. Um, I had to be accountable. I had to do all these assignments. And, of course, I had to get a sponsor and be part of a program and go through my 12 steps. And I, I finished it in 
October of 2014, and that month, my ex-husband and I filed for a divorce. Uh, that year, in 2014, we paid off uh, the IRS. Um, no, I'm sorry, we paid off my husband's ex-wife that year in 2014. <laughs> and the following year, 2015, while we were still, you know, fought, we were going through our, our legal separation, and we lived together during our legal separation, we we weren't gonna like we had to like really take all of our money and and just spend it on our debts. So we played nice. We got along well with each other. The program really helped me um, forgive him because forgiving him was like huge for me. I mean, I realized this person just you know he didn't intentionally set out to get me, but. He, I just had to put myself in his shoes, and this this program is about like loving people and forgiving people, having compassion, have, having empathy, and I really practiced a lot of that on him. So in 2015, we paid off the IRS, and then um, we 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 split ways. Um, it's really funny. The judge signed the order to our divorce. On July 23rd, 2015, my second sober birthday. And I'm like, if that isn't the universe telling me I did something right, I don't know what it is. I mean, on my sober birthday, my divorce was legal. And I've been wanting out for a long time. So um, uh, now it's all good. I, I bought a condo um, last September. I've owned it for a year now by myself. I make the mortgage payments alone on by myself. And uh uh, him and I are still on speaking terms, and we're friends, and we split a cat. We share the cat. <laughs> <laughs> and he has a new girlfriend. He got a new girlfriend before we were even, like, physically apart from each other. But there's there's no animosity. There's no hatred. Um, I really came out of this, and I never thought I would get out of these two things, um, the marriage and the alcoholism. Um, both were, for me, equally as awful. Uh, I really thought this this whole, I mean, this is a nine-year journey for me, that marriage and that debt. And and my, my really, the horrible part of my alcoholism was all throughout my 30s. So by the time I got to 41, I'm 44 now, um, I, I really started to learn who I am. Um, I'm very grateful uh, that there are treatment programs, I don't think just going to AA would have been enough for me. I needed a lot of um, emotional support. I needed a lot of counseling um, because I'd been through a lot of emotional trauma and physical trauma, um, which I just never processed. I just worked my butt off to help him pay off these debts. So I'm now at a really great place in my life. And I wouldn't change a thing that I've gone through because it's made me super strong. Um, I'm like a champion when it comes to stress now. Um, I feel very solid. And I was, I used to be the opposite when it came to stress. Everything would make me crumble, everything. I mean, I've, I lost my grandmother last year, so I've already experienced, you know, a loss of a loved one uh, in early recovery. Um, I went through a divorce in early recovery. I went through a job loss in early recovery, a job gain in early recovery. You know, going through the interview process for a job is always stressful. Um, losing a job is always stressful, especially when you have a mortgage and you're by yourself. And, um, I, I just, I feel like I'm an adult now. Like I have all these coping skills that I should have gained in my teens. And I don't know if everybody gets them, but I sure didn't have any of them. So that's that's about it for my story. It's just everything's 
really good and I'm connected to my higher power. My higher power is extremely powerful. Um, I'm lucky to be alive. I really got out of that coma by the skin of my teeth. And if it wasn't for my family being there that night, I know I'd be dead. Because uh, if nobody was there shouting, do something to help her, I would be dead and somebody else would have my heart and someone else would have my kidneys and someone else would have my lungs. But um, I'd be gone. Unbelievable. Man, I got to tell you, it is such a miracle. It's one of these aha moments, even for the people that are listening, that you have such an incredible story that you are compelled to share this. Like You have to take this on tour, so to speak, <laughs> you know, because like you said, you should be dead. There's yeah. no question about it. And before the interview, I was telling you about my father who, who died mm -hmm. of cirrhosis of the liver. And as you were talking about where you were at in the hospital, in a coma, you know, it was touch and go that at any given moment, you shouldn't have made it. And most people wouldn't have made it. So it's, it's a combination of your will to live and then this destiny and this purpose that you have on this earth, this divine purpose that you have to carry this message and to help others. Because coming through this on the other side, there's no question about it. If you go back out, it's because you just want to kill yourself. Exactly. And, as far as the relationship with your ex-husband, as I'm listening, you know, I'm biting my tongue here. <laughs> it's a completely codependent, dysfunctional relationship. Oh, yeah. You know. On uh, so many levels. Oh, the triangle of self-obsession, you know, where you're either playing the victim, the yeah. aggressor, or the hero. And you yeah. guys kept shifting roles as you were telling your story. And I kept going, oh, my God. Like, seriously. Yeah. Right. And the fact that he got into a relationship before you guys were even done is the same thing that he did when he was married and getting yes. divorced and got with you. So yes. he, un until he decides to do what you're doing, which is a thorough and fearless moral inventory of yourself, a complete 360 where you have to just, you know, is it 360 or 180? It's a 180. Okay, you make a 180 because you make a 360, end up in the same channel, yeah. right? <laughs> I corrected. Yeah. I corrected. Yes. I've been corrected on that a few times in my life, so I didn't want to say anything. I knew what you meant, though. It doesn't matter. But yeah, you have to make this complete 180 in your life where they tell you in recovery, the only thing you have to change is one thing, and that's everything. Everything. Yeah. And that's what I did. I had to change everything about myself from the way I view the world to the way I view myself. I feel like I have a lot of working parts going in my favor for recovery. Um, you know, the, the willingness to tell this story, to warn people, this is where it's going to take you. Also, um, the enthusiasm to let people know that sobriety and recovery is so worth it and so amazing. And you're cheating yourself if you don't at least give yourself a chance. Also, I, I've been gifted in many ways in life, and I do not want to throw my gifts away. Um, I, I really feel like um, I'm, I'm extremely lucky. I know that most people would not have survived what I went through. I don't know. Um, I'm a very strong-willed person, but um, I really feel like there is a force outside of me that was watching after me. And I'm not, like, super religious. I grew up Catholic, but I always felt, you know, in conflict with it. But there, there is something out there that 
the universe is too vast that our little brains cannot understand it. And I did have some strange things happen in when I was in my coma, and I can't really comprehend it or articulate it. But having a near-death experience will change a person for the better, I think. Um, but but then I then I slipped. But then I went back to the alcoholism, and that's the baffling part of this disease. Um, this this disease brought me to my end and I still forgot what it boils down to is when you think about your ability to relate to have empathy to have sympathy you know almost like the the boyfriend that you talk about in the beginning who had 10 years and relapsed it goes to show you just how powerless we are against opiates those pharmaceutical yeah. heroin products are just so powerful and they're designed to be that way yeah they're supposed mm -hmm. to be addictive it's just like cigarettes the food we eat the fast foods the sugars the fats the nicotine the caffeine the drugs it's all designed around getting people hooked on things you know if you planted your own garden you could figure out a way to produce enough food for yourself that you can live an incredible life devoid of grocery stores and butcher shops but they don't then that's not what they're interested in they're interested in is is to make money and so here you are with this situation like your what like your boyfriend has who goes through a you know a horrific accident and then boom all of a sudden he's hooked on this stuff and mm -hmm. so for you the takeaway on this is that you understand what he went through because after yes. everything that you went through going back out there was just that whole you know how did this happen at the base of it all we're addicts. And if yep. we're not 100, 100% careful and cautious at all times, just like you did recently, somebody, you know, you, you said at the beginning also that um, they offered you uh, something. Oh, yeah. For, for taking a commercial flight, uh, my doctor wanted to give me a mild sedative just, to ca just in case I felt like I was going to relapse. But just to have that on me. Just to offer that to me. I mean, this is my addiction specialist. Your addiction specialist is you. And That's why you, I said no. <laughs> you've gotten to a point in your recovery where your impulse, your reaction was to say, nope, mm -hmm. I'm out. Like immediately, no, uh, yeah. I'm out, I'm out. There's no Not way. Not an option. Yeah. yeah. It's not an option. Um, and, you know, everyone profits off the addicted um, even when it comes to treatment, I, I would really like to see if I can help, you know, pass some bills where more affordable outpatient care is available um, for everybody with insurance, because I don't think it's always necessary to go into an inpatient treatment um, unless maybe, I don't know, maybe some people really need it. I thought maybe I needed it. I mean, I was truly a mess. I went through detox, but I, I did it in an outpatient way. But um, I really feel that there are a lot of people on both sides um, taking advantage of you know, selling to the addicted people and trying to, to heal them and, and profiting off of them in, in not a fair way. Um, it, it's it's just, it's, I'm still trying to figure out, like, how can we fix this system? Because there are more people now having problems with all these opiates. You know, you hear of these kids. When I was in treatment, the only people under 25 that were in my treatment were there for opiates. They were not there for alcohol. That was uh, hugely interesting, very interesting to me. Um, yeah, but not, su not surprising, not surprising at no. all. No, but actually, like, I, I mean, I, I couldn't believe not one of them was there for alcohol. I mean, they were there because they were on Oxycontin, and then they transitioned into heroin um, at, like, 22. 
and they look like they were 82. Yeah. Um, really sad. And, you know, the counselors are telling them, you're not going to make it to 30. And I'm looking at these kids thinking, I think that's probably true for many of them. It's, it's so sad. It, it's, and they're so young. Um, I don't know if treatment would have worked for me at 22, but I also didn't give it a chance. Um, I wish I had because it's wonderful. <laughs> well, again, it goes back to your point where it's like, would you change anything? Would I change anything? No, not no. now I would. No, no. no. I it, got me, it got me here. Even, even, even the part about, you know, even in my own recovery as far as w- how I have evolved as a man, mm-hmm. as someone who can be in a relationship, as someone, you know, I am, I'm married but i was i was divorced and then i was divorced because of all the ridiculous antics and wreckage that mm-hmm. i caused during my you know drug abuse mm-hmm. and then it took me 10 years in recovery into recovery before i met my wife so imagine all the different changes and the step work and, you know, the yeah. diff- all the other relationships, you know, I was in a lot of relationships mm-hmm. prior to, to meeting my wife because I will, I got to a point and I remember I got to a point where my, my very last relationship, I, re- I realized this is going to end. It's going to end amicably, which it did. And I know exactly what I'm looking for. And then within two months, I met my wife. It was, yeah, no, it's, it's, there's no question about it. When we talk about having a, a higher power, a white light, an aha moment, they happen not just in that moment where you transition into recovery. They happen throughout your recovery as you evolve as a, a person, as a human being, as a woman, as a wife, as a mother, as an aunt, as, you know, it's all these different things that happen because the changes that occur within you, right? They just resonate in all areas of your life. Mm-hmm. And you and start, you, mm-hmm. go ahead. No, it's exponential too. You feel like your spirit is just growing, like getting larger. Um, and it happens, you feel the clicks. Like when you felt that, that change in yourself when you knew you were ready to meet the right woman, yes. you identified it immediately. And that happens with almost every growth spurt we have, Correct. it seems like, in recovery. But go on, sorry. No, no, no. But that, I mean, that, that's just really the, the point of it all. The point of it all is that the, when, when the journey begins, there is no end game. There isn't. Mm-hmm. All right. The, once the journey begins, that it's it's all about the journey yes. from that moment on. And what's next? And that's the goosebump making part of recovery for me is that I didn't know that this is a, like you're opening a Christmas present all the time. Like yeah. what's next? What's next? What's next? It's just getting better and better and better. And it's too good to be true. Um, you know, especially when the obsession of drinking and using has been lifted from you. That to me was my first gift and it happened Almost within the first few weeks of treatment, you know, I know that doesn't happen for everybody right away. Sometimes it takes them a long time. But that obsession, just that being lifted was like that's when I had hope that life could be full of a lot of possibility if I open my mind and I shut my mouth and listen hard. (laughs) 
I like what you said there as far as, you know, it's like life is this continuous gift that, you know, you're opening the, you know, presence all the time. Yep. You know, the, because these gifts, they come and they come and they come. Uh, the, the, the most important thing though also is that there is work involved. It's yes. not, you know, you, you don't just like, okay, well now I'm, I'm clean and sober. So now I can't wait for all my gifts to show up. Yeah. Right. Uh, if it's you, work. Yeah. If you do not put in the work necessary, all right, to become a better human being, to become a better person, to recover, you have to, in our case, um, go to meetings, get a sponsor, work the steps, take suggestions, right? Continuously work on yourself on a daily basis. Yep. Then, you know, unless you do those things, then all what we're discussing right now, it doesn't come to fruition. You know, uh, nope. faith, faith without works is dead, as we all know. Mm-hmm. So you have to put in the work. But but once you do, man, you, you know, these amazing miracles and gifts just start to happen. And yeah. and you can't help but like, I got to get, you know, what can I do now? What, what, what can I do to improve myself, right, so that I can get another gift? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it also, it also helps, you know, I want to share this information with other people, whether they're open to it or not. I definitely enjoy trying to help people with these problems. I go to these online groups and I talk to people who are just in their first couple of weeks. I just, this pays in high dividends. It's like putting money in the bank when you're working. You work hard for it. You protect it. You, you know, you, you watch it. It's like, I, it's like I check myself all the time. Where's my attitude? Am I living grateful? Like, am I a grateful person? Like, am I truly grateful or am I pretending to be grateful today? Um, I, I had a really, oh, I have a, a baseline I can compare misery to. But, you know, when you're feeling healthy and life is good and then something doesn't go your way, like, it's still, I could easily slip into that self-pity and all that. And thank God I have these tools now to not be in this, like, victim role, self-pity, like, pity parades. I would be on a pity parade. I'd be the queen of my pity parade float. You know, I have all these little visuals in my head, like, get off your pity parade float. This is not about you. Um, (laughs) You know, it's just... And, and just trying to be a better person. And, and that's basically just trying to be the best human being that we can be. Um, I'm very grateful that I have this affliction because it exposed me to information that I think every human being would benefit from. But we have to work for this. Um, so I'm lucky that I can be my better, bestest self, if that's the right way to put it. But, I mean, having... <laughs> But, you know, it's just um, I want to be more evolved. I am truly humble still. Um, I I try not to get a big head about, um, you know, how far I've come because I know that tomorrow, God forbid, could be day one again or never again. I might not have another day one in me. Um, I I don't have I don't even entertain the idea that I have another recovery in me. Um, Some of my friends think that's not the right way to look at it, but I, I can't afford to um, to think that I'm going to go through all this from the beginning again. Like, this is it. I'm just moving forward. I know it's one day at a time, but for me, I'm just, I'm, I'm moving. Like, this machine is not stopping. Um, I, I, have, I have to keep going. And sharing my story really does, 
I hope help others, but it does actually help me too because I always process something new when I, I share and I feel like I grow a little bit myself too. And I really thank you for giving me the opportunity to share this with your listeners and with you. Because um, what I went through, I, I really would, I hate, I hate knowing that people go through this, that there are people dying in the hospital from this right now. And they're probably being told on many, in many cases, this is your fault. You brought this on yourself. And they're not be give, given the compassion that if someone who had cancer or diabetes or kidney disease would be, um, it's just, it, it just I, I'm, still, I'm still amazed how the medical community is still very ignorant about this um, no, they're not very ignorant. They know exactly what they're doing, and yeah. and they're 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 choosing they're choosing to uh, live with the fact that they know that they're killing people. They're yeah. they're actually, you know, the medical industry is killing people. They're not saving lives, right? That's not the end game for them, yeah. and and it's truly sad. So we have to bring awareness to this mm-hmm. as much as we can. Yeah. Um, so, so that we stick close to what works for us. You know, we have to connect with a higher power because that's, that's where our strength is going to come from. That's where our salvation comes from, and, and that's where we move from. But you know what? We could do this for a couple hours. And, you know, know. we, we got to close this sucker up. I know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's start to close up here. So uh, I'd like to close up uh, by asking you a few questions about your early recovery. Uh, for the newcomers. Are you ready? Yes. Okay, so the first question would be, what initially was preventing you from embracing the idea of recovery when you first got introduced to it? Oh, probably the same thing that many people go through, um, that I'd be going to meetings every day for the rest of my life, and I would just stop drinking alcohol, and that's it. Like I didn't understand that there's a whole world involved it, it, there's a method to this it, it's not it's not black and white that you quit and then you trade that for meetings um i also thought that i was too sick for any program to fix me um <laughs> and i don't know if that's my it's probably my ego but um i really thought like i am so messed up like like who goes through liver failure and then drinks again who's gonna fix me like this is this is crazy who does that and someone said to me an alcoholic <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, that's right, I'm an alcoholic. So, um, you know, really just thinking that, um, you know, if you're really young, you think you're too young for this, and that's just not not true at all. There's people all ages, and it does work for them. Um, I went to school with a girl who actually got into recovery at the age of 13 because her parents sent her to rehab. Her um, older brothers had been feeding her alcohol for quite a while and she was a mess at 13. So if a 13 year old can recover, I think that a 23 year old can recover too. Um, Mm, Yeah. No question about it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, you already touched, uh, you know, we already touched on your aha moment, that spiritual awakening, which is, you know, one of the questions that I ask, is there anything more you wanted to expand on that spiritual awakening you had when you finally dis- when you finally realized that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time developed the hope that you could recover. 
Oh, I think waking up out of that coma, something happened to me when I was under because I was so close to the end and I can't really describe it. Um, but I knew I know because once I got to treatment, I was talking to my counselor about my thought process after I got out of the hospital and how I was starting to take the higher road. And that I was trying to be more patient with people, more compassionate, less self involved. And my counselor said to me, you already had your spiritual awakening when you were in that hospital. And after processing a few things with her, she's like, it's almost like the program was uh, injected into you (laughs) before you got here. And that's probably what led you to think that this could actually be a solution for you. So um, I I really, uh, for me, it it had to bring me to a coma. I don't think everybody has to get into a coma to get a spiritual awakening. I think they just need to be open um, to the possibility that you can heal and you can recover. And finding people who are, have recovery is very important. Um, I, Like I mentioned before, I didn't know anybody. I wasn't listening to podcasts. I didn't go <laughs> online. I mean, I really was living in my own little box. I I didn't even go online, and I mean, this is what I do for a a living. I build websites. I'm very technically savvy, but I just didn't even look online to find other people to talk to when I could have, and I just thought, no, they're not, they don't know anything, so um, I was very, I'm a victim of my own stubbornness in some ways, and and I don't think everyone's as stubborn as me, because I do meet a lot of people online who are very eager to get help. so, uh, yeah, just, oh gosh, just being open to the possibility that if this works for other people, it can work for you, too. Absolutely. absolutely. I mean, there's nothing no, there's nothing super special about me. I mean, this is re- recovery for everybody. Amen. Um, <laughs> it is. Amen. And uh, do you have a favorite book that you would recommend to a newcomer that you read in early um, recovery? I did read a lot of uh, AA literature, but um, for people who might not want to get so far into that or if maybe they've read a lot of it already, um, Brene Brown, um, The Gifts of Imperfection was really good for me because um, my perfectionist personality, my perfectionism, um, is it's served me no purpose in my life. Um, it just gets me into more trouble, into more self-doubt, and to being hard on myself. So this book, The Gift of Imperfection, was really helpful because it, it really helped me start to soften my point of view on myself, the, my self-talking, my negative self-talking. You know, I can tell when I'm I'm starting in a pattern when I'm in the shower in the morning and I'm washing my hair, and if I feel like I'm scrubbing my scalp too hard. I stop myself. I think, what am I thinking right now? And I'm usually planning my day out. And I, I soften up because I know I'm already being hard on myself. Like, you're not going to be able to get this done. You're not going to be able to do this. What happens if you can't get that done? Oh, God forbid. And then I start like all this crazy negative thought process. So that book um, really did help me a lot. And uh uh, for me, a lot of it is just I still deal with my perfectionism, but um, <laughs> I, I'm getting better. Um, 
I'm just, I'm okay now when everything's just not perfect, but I'm still trying to do everything right. Um, and I don't know if I'll ever completely change that about me. But if you're a person who re- really is kind of like um, OCD in certain ways, and I'm, I'm not making light of OCD, I don't have it like at the extent that I know some people do have. Um, <laughs> but you know, if like everything in your house has to have a place and someone moves it out of place and you're going to like let that ruin your day, read this book um, because you don't want to trigger a, a relapse over or somebody move the candle um, and, and, and leave your house thinking that candle is still not where it's supposed to be. Now, I'm not that bad anymore, but I was at some point, especially in my alcoholism, I was getting really, like, really crazy. Um, it's a it, very sick, sick person. Trust me. Trust me. <laughs> like you said, you're not special. Right? Yeah. I've been yeah. there. We've all been there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was a really good book, and um, also emotional sobriety, which I think is a little more advanced once you're in. Um, it's uh, it's uh, I think a second edition of for AA. Um, once you get through the big book, reading about emotional sobriety, because I didn't realize how emotionally immature I was until I got into this program. I thought I'm like a, a teenage girl living in a woman's body, and yeah. I'm upset all the time. And I'm sure there's a lot of teenage girls living inside of um, middle-aged men bodies too you know like we're not getting our way we want to pound our feet um everything's a crisis um so emotional sobriety that was another good book I accidentally left it on a plane um last year and i thought well somebody who's gonna need this is gonna get it <laughs> <laughs> that's a great way to look at that great way to look yeah. at it i like that i like that okay so then number four what is the best suggestion you have ever received Oh, this one I love, and I got it at treatment. Um, stop taking yourself so seriously. Nobody else does. You know, like you're ridiculous, and so is everybody else. And I'm like, oh my god, that's so true. <laughs> so I learned basically how to observe myself objectively without judgment. I love it. That's, that's what not taking yourself so seriously means like a good way someone described it to me was like if you're you had a friend complaining about the problems that you're currently having how worried would you be for them (laughs) would you really be that concerned for them or would you think they're being ridiculous nice and i thought oh my god that's such a perfect way to like when i'm worried about these problems that are just so not life-threatening problems like nobody's gonna die kind of problems um yeah like stop taking myself so seriously like you know life is short we are all gonna die whether we like to believe that or not i think human beings are in denial about that from day one like there's something special and it's not gonna happen to me the truth is we all will die when it's our time but before that happens let's just kind of take it easy stop taking everything so seriously unless you're a brain surgeon maybe there's no point of um of uh you know beating yourself up when things aren't you know going your way a hey, question. Have you ever heard of uh, the term Rule 62? Um, I don't know. Have I? I probably it, have. It's, it's an old school AA term or slogan uh, or cliche, actually, um, where uh, it's not an actual rule in the big book. 
right? But but they were squabbling about some stuff early on, and somebody says, okay, we're going to have to invoke Rule 62 here. And they're like, Rule 62? Yeah. Rule 62 is don't take yourself so damn seriously. Yeah, yeah, then that's it. <laughs> that, that was it. It's true. And the day that they, they did that, um, I was at the beach, and we had these little red, like, uh, clown balls that we put on our noses. <laughs> so we're all sitting there with little red clown balls on our nose and taking pictures of each other. And it's like I put that on my profile picture on Facebook a few times when I felt like I'm just taking myself way too seriously. <laughs> just to remind myself, look how ridiculous you are. And you're smiling. Like, get over yourself. <laughs> no, you have to sometimes. And that's, that's one of the more very early on in recovery that is exactly what my sponsor told me. He's like, listen, dude, if you don't stop taking yourself so seriously, you will drink again. Yeah. Right? yeah. You've got to really relax. Yeah. Right? You, you know. About, yeah. Self-acceptance. Yeah, your you know? shit ain't that important, buddy. No, you know. I'm kidding. <laughs> it's like, I also feel like part of that is uh, just a piggyback off that is self-acceptance is so important. I thought, you know, if I can't accept myself, how can I expect anybody else to? That's very true, 100%. Yeah. So if you could give our listeners only one suggestion, what would it be? Oh, my gosh. Uh, the listeners who are already in recovery keep going. Uh, it gets better and better and better, as uh, we were discussing earlier. If you are a person who is still in active addiction, um, don't give up on yourself. Give yourself a chance to at least explore the possibility of recovery Um a lot of people die from this. They don't even get to the point where they can. If you're listening to this, you know you have a problem and you're, you've broken it through some denial, but you're still drinking. That You can do this. Um, this is definitely something that's achievable. Um, I mentioned on another podcast I was interviewed on everything I was trying to achieve with drinking, I've actually achieved in sobriety. That, that feeling of happiness and joy and bliss and peace, peace. If you're drinking thinking it's bringing you peace, you know it's not bringing you peace. But recovery and sobriety, it'll bring you all the peace that you need. It, it really, it's so worth it. Um, life is very short. We should not be sitting around putting poison in our bodies and thinking that's fun or the answer to solving our problems. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Great way to close here. Great way to close. Wow. Gabby, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate any type of help I can give to anybody. And also, if any of your listeners would like to contact me, um, I'm happy to email people back and ask, uh, answer questions or be a friend. What's the um, best way for our listeners to get a hold of you? Oh, I'll just give you guys my email address. It's gabbycampagna at gmail.com. So that's G-A-B-Y-C-A-M-P-A-G-N-A at, at gmail.com. Or you can find me at uh, Gabrielle Campagna on Facebook and friend me. And I also belong to some groups, um, good recovery online groups, um, that I can point you in the direction of. I'm an admin on a 51st days um, with Laura Ann. Uh, that's Laura Ann's group. So um, there's lots of great groups out there. There's a share podcast recovery accountability yeah. group. It's awesome. <laughs> recovery Elevator is actually the first group I ever joined. And um, that's how I kind of 
found all these other wonderful podcasts and recovery groups. Uh, there's Recovery Buddha that Penny runs. Um, so there's so there's so many resources out there, and this is the best time. I mean, to become a sober person in this day and age, we're all very lucky. I mean, oh my gosh, we're so lucky. Yes, the stigma behind that, like you mentioned, the Recovery Elevator, the Recovery Buddha, these private groups, they're thriving, they're helping people, they're private. So you Mm -hmm. have these amazing opportunities to share openly about recovery, about your own issues, um, in the safety of you know, uh, of, of your own, of your own fold without having to mm-hmm. have the judgment of the outside world. So there is a lot of opportunities now uh, to reach out and be heard and help others. Mm-hmm. And plus, it's so much fun. I mean, if you're on social media and you feel like everybody's full of BS because they're just showing themselves on their best day, you want to see real people and have real conversations that are deep and meaningful. These groups, that's where you go. I have the best conversations and philosophical <laughs> conversations and arguments with people, but everybody still plays pretty nice. Even some of the dry drunks, we can get them to kind of turn it around. Yes, <laughs> that's so true. Beautiful, beautiful. All right. Well, we have now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Pura Vida. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.